Claire. Hi Zoe, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. Great column today. Yeah, so today I wrote about Queensland Mm -hmm. introducing gender self-identification laws and surprisingly this hasn't really been covered that much in our media. I didn't see anybody writing about it for The Australian, which is the paper that I write for other than Quillette, Uh, which is surprising because it's a pretty huge shift Mm -hmm. and the laws um, are described as modernising birth certificates and what they mean is that you can be a man, identify as a woman, and you can go and get your birth certificate changed by the Queensland government and you don't need any kind of verification that of anything. All, all no you, doctors, sign off, nothing anymore. Nothing, no verification that you have gender dysphoria, no verification of anything. All you have to do is rock up and say, I'm a woman. And you can be a man and do that and have then be issued with a female birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And so in my piece, I just wrote about how these laws have been passed in other jurisdictions and have led to some embarrassing results for the politicians who have championed them. And the most obvious example is Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, who was a champion of gender self-ID laws. Uh, But then this um, difficult situation, difficult for her at least, situation arose when um, a man who was a rapist started identifying as a woman whilst in custody and he had a shaved head and put on a blonde wig and started calling himself Isla Bryson and asked to be transferred to a women's prison, and he was. But news got out, obviously, and there was public backlash, and the public backlash contributed to her political demise. And so something similar might happen in Australia, we don't know. But I have been surprised by the lack of discussion, the lack of pushback, and the general um, acceptance by the opposition regarding these laws because they are quite uh, transformational. They really upend, um, you know, they, they erase any legal recognition of biological sex and, you know, there are obviously... Um, unintended consequences that can Mm -hmm. follow from that. Mm. And I always wonder what happens with research and demographics and things like that, like how are we supposed to keep track of how many of the sex balance? Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, people might argue that these laws affect such a tiny minority, they're not going to mess up our statistics. However, Crime statistics refer to a small minority of the population Mm -hmm. as well. And if we're going to have a 50% increase in uh, sex offending among women, Mm -hmm. that is going to mess up our crime statistics. So, you know, it's only a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of women who ever engage in sex offending. So 98% of um, all sex offenders are male. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to have a sudden surge in women um, being convicted of sex offences, it is going to mess up our crime statistics. Yeah, I mean, it just takes away the whole meaning of being a woman. Like, what's the point? You know, if anyone can say they're a woman and they don't even need a doctor or any other professional to justify it or to, you know, prove it. Yeah, and and, uh, I mean, we've discussed this before and our position on this is fairly clear, but I've been surprised at the lack of 
like I, I, I haven't seen any kind of opposition from Queensland's opposition party. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have a clue what their stance is. And I'm surprised that, you know, the proponents of these laws argue that the only people who care about them or the only people who question them are religious conservatives. Now, I'm not a religious conservative. No. Um, like. It, and it's, it's not a religious matter at all. It's a scientific matter. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a matter of truth. And, yeah, we've talked about it before, that the truth is actually, you know, important and – And, you know, I conclude my column by arguing that, you know, this is sort of the apotheosis of this trend towards sanctifying feelings Mm -hmm. above objective realities. Mm -hmm. And it's gotten to this absurd point. And maybe it will be a bit of a tipping point back to normality when there is more of uh, public awareness Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps public pushback or backlash. I mean, it has to come at some point. And as you said, the irony is that the more emphasis we put on feelings and being sensitive to people's feelings, people are actually, young people are actually more depressed than ever and with higher rates of anxiety. So yeah, I mean, these it, it, bespoke it's, identities. it's clearly not helping people become more healthy mm-hmm. at a population level. We have never had more mental health disorders among young people ever before. Mm-hmm. And so offering up a la carte identity, you know, offering up all of these uh, ways that we can identify as either binary or non-binary or two gender, two spirit, or, you know, I have ADHD and I'm <laughs> neurodiverse and I'm mm-hmm. this and that, I'm that. I mean, that's not helping young mm-hmm. people. It clearly isn't. So do you think that young people are also more willing to sort of identify as mentally ill or self-diagnose? Yeah. Like, do you think that's part of it too, that perhaps they're actually not as mentally ill as they say they are, but you know, it's it's an interesting question and I don't know Mm. the answer to that, but you know, it's quite possible that, so there's been a a strong push to destigmatize mental illness Mm -hmm. and that's important. We definitely do need to destigmatize mental illness, but we've destigmatized some types of mental illness and neurodiversity, not all. Mm-hmm. I think psychosis and schizophrenia are still very much stigmatized. I don't see a trend of young people coming out saying that they're psychotic or schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, arguably they're the most serious mm-hmm. mental disorders that, you know, people can be afflicted with. But we certainly are seeing a huge wave of people identifying themselves as having ADHD or autism and a range of other either disorders or just um, differences. Mm. I mean, not all of these things are actually mm-hmm. disorders. I mean, they're just, it's just being different. And it's not that we should start stigmatizing difference again. I don't think we should, but... Uh, there might be a there might be a trend of people sort of wanting to have something that is special and clinging and grabbing a label Definitely. that helps them feel special or different or less guilty about just being a normal person which yeah, isn't that yeah normal cool is anymore. normal is not cool yeah normal is not trendy mm. but um, there was a song <laughs> Back in the 80s, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's hip to be square. Yes, yeah. 
We need scratch. another song like that. Isn't that in a horror movie? It's called To Be Normal. Oh, that's in American Psycho. It's to be <laughs> scratch. Yeah. Mm. You know, it is actually called To Be Normal. There's yeah. nothing wrong with yeah, being yeah. normal. And I think the the counter sort of revolution or cultural shift will be that um, identifying as like trad. It's like, you know, normal and traditional and the pendulum is going to swing. It's already swung. Yeah. And that's why you have, you know, the rise of like Andrew Tate's and yeah. people like that to some yeah. extent Yeah. Um, because – People see, they feel like they have to choose. It's like blue-haired, you know, crazy people, liberals or um, Andrew Tate. And (laughs) I think we both want to show that you can be in the middle and you can be a normal, healthy person with happy, healthy relationships with people of all different types politically. And yeah, well, ultimately, what you identify as is pretty irrelevant. Mm. And what is important is how you treat people Mm -hmm. and also what you achieve with the gifts that you've been given. And identity, no one really cares. Like in the real world, no one really cares about your identity. I mean, you might, some people might pay attention to you on social media or TikTok if you have a hashtag particular identity but no one really cares in the real world Mm. and um doesn't make you having a special identity doesn't make you rich doesn't make the people around you necessarily love you more so Mm. you know the it's it's a bit of a a a delusion that kids are operating under that it's their identity is important Mm -hmm. no one really cares yeah and that's the funny thing it's like you see so much of this online but you know, in our office today, for example, like you don't see much of it. You don't see, you know, people identifying as obscure out there things. Or you said that a a kid in here uh, wanted to be referred to as not the moon, but a moon. Yeah. Yeah. As cats and stuff. And maybe teachers would say they are seeing more and more of it. And I'm sure that's true. But, Mm. you know, in your day to day life, I don't see that much of it. Well, Unfortunately, there is, you know, you can sort of make a living Mm -hmm. if you get onto the disability pension Mm -hmm. and you do identify as having some kind of chronic illness. You Mm -hmm. can sort of make a living out of being a patient. Mm -hmm. And it is a pathway. It is one particular pathway. I wouldn't recommend it Mm -hmm. unless one was genuinely unable to work. it, it is it is a pathway, and people can uh, survive mm-hmm. or or have a have some kind of existence going down the road where they sort of play up whatever it is that mm-hmm. they might have wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's potentially. I mean, it, I wouldn't recommend it because it's potentially not the best pathway towards mm-hmm. contentment mm-hmm. and fulfillment and mm-hmm. having a happy, healthy mm-hmm. life. It's very interesting, though. Not even people who claim to be, you know, disabled when they're not um, or to have a chronic illness, although there are lots of influences. I think there's a special name for them. I don't know, chronic illness influences who make a living off this. But even just, you know, people who claim that they're severely like allergic to something like dairy-free or lactose, you know, Mm. um, gluten-free, there's been a rise in that too. And like my mum recently went to the gastroenterologist 
And she was saying that, oh, maybe I'm allergic to this and that. And he said to her, it's a very like, you know, white woman really? thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And it sort of is like, you know, I don't know why. I don't know the correlation between, you know, being an educated sort mm, of mm. woman. It's it's mostly a female thing, I think, like to sort of. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of mysterious as mm. to why. I mean, some people have argued that, you know, all of this kaleidoscope of identities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, has come about because we're a very rich mm-hmm. society and people have got nothing better to do. That's one argument. Uh, another argument is that, you know, people are being exposed to a lot of ideology at university mm-hmm. and maybe this is a product of people being overeducated mm-hmm. in our current university system. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I don't have an answer myself. I think it's curious. But um, all I know is that uh, focusing on one's identity is not is not a proven method mm-hmm. for leading a happy life. Mm-hmm. What we know makes people happy is having good relationships with other people. So treating other people with respect and kindness and then having some sense of mastery or achievement. So that means working hard developing a skill, being good at something, getting re- recognition from your peers for being competent. That's what makes mm, people not happy. Not for being a victim. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe some people are happy to be recognized as victims, maybe. In the short term, it would feel great. Possibly. Mm. But I don't I I don't see how that could be sustainable long term. Do we really do you really want to feel like a victim for 30 years, for mm. 40 years? I mean, come on. Mm. Seriously? Mm. <laughs> Um, well, you were talking about university and how maybe some of these ideas are coming out of universities um, or at least being sort of exacerbated. Yeah. Um, and I would agree. Yeah. And uh, we published a very interesting article by Peter Wood this week in Quillette. Great um, article. Incredible. It's, uh, it's called After College. Yes. Uh, there was a really good quote. Where was it? I thought it was interesting that he pointed out that, sure, there is radical ideology in the university system, but the the problem with the education system is not necessarily the radicalism, it's the emptiness. Yes. So the, the, at least in the when you, we're thinking about the humanities or the liberal arts side of education, there's sort of been a hollowing out of scholarly principles. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past there were the – the subjects such as history or English had very, you know, they'd built up over hundreds of years or even philosophy. Mm-hmm. They'd built up over hundreds of years and they have a foundation in scholarly principles. However, a lot of new subjects that have arisen out of maybe since the 1970s, mm-hmm. they lack those scholarly principles and so there's this vacuousness or emptiness and almost any kind of radical or fringe ideology can come and fill it. Yeah. I thought that was a really good point. Yeah. The quote um, that's on that topic says, uh, contemporary college is so lacking in a coherent intellectual core that anything that students run into that rings of passionate advocacy wins admiration, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter zealotry, transgender raving, anti-Semitic bloodlust and post-colonial or Indigenous fabulism. Each attract cultic worshippers who mistake their idols for critical thinking. Um, 
Yeah, because they've been led to believe that critical thinking means attacking whatever stands in the way of today's version of social justice. And wow, that rang really true for me and my experience at university. Um, And, you know, it's also just that you're at that age. You know, I'm sure if I were to go to university right now, I wouldn't be like that. But um, Mm. that's what I was like. So you've described yourself as having been a vegan Marxist (laughs) feminist (laughs) Mm -hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Was that prior to university? We did you identify as a vegan Marxist feminist prior <laughs> to university, or just while you were yeah. at university? Yeah, I got into these ideas when I was about fourteen or fifteen, okay. and I started going on Tumblr. And I'm not sure how I came across this content, but I'm naturally a very curious person, and mm-hmm. was probably interested in you know some of the big picture ideas, yeah. and you know was very and still am compassionate and I care a lot about suffering and I started, you know, mm. to see all oh, animal suffering and yeah. the pro- vegan propaganda and then was reading, you know, all these activists who were saying, well, you know, if you're going to be a feminist, if you think you're a feminist, then how can you drink milk? Right. Because that doesn't make sense, you know. The female cows are oh, shackled okay. and yeah, yeah. um and then you know, how are you going to be a vegan and a feminist if you're not anti-capitalist? Because it's all part of the system. The system is patriarchal and, um, you know, hurtful to animals inherently. So you have to, you know, oppose all of it. Yeah, it has to come Um, in a package. And Mm. I felt a lot of pressure to really adhere to every sort of tenet of, of the sort of religion. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And yeah. at this time I was a militant atheist. <laughs> I still am. Like I'd say I'm agnostic now, but I'm definitely – yeah. it doesn't preoccupy me as much. Yeah. Um, and coming out of that identity or that ideology, was that a gradual process or did it happen suddenly? Um. Well, no, it was quite gradual. I was part of all these feminist groups, these um, Facebook groups, and – I just started seeing that there was more and more um, authoritarianism. Exactly. You have to put a trigger warning on that. We've removed your post because right. you didn't. You were talking about food, and you have to put a trigger warning for eating disorders. But all this. And stuff. so it was the behaviour of the yeah. other people. Yeah. That turns you off. And I could see that some of the girls, some of the moderators, were sort of getting off on, yeah, being, being authoritarian. Yeah. Authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah. And they could use that power to virtue signal and act like they were just doing it Mm. for the good of the group or humanity or whatever. But actually it was a personal thing and they loved the individual power. Right. Because, you know, to be honest, there's nothing wrong with getting involved or Mm -hmm. interested in animal rights and there's nothing wrong with um, looking into feminist activism and arguments and... I would say that there is something wrong with being anti-capitalist, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's certainly nothing wrong with reading um, critiques of free market fundamentalism. I mean, there's a di- there's a difference between regulated capitalism and absolute mm-hmm. um, anarcho-capitalism, mm-hmm. which some people advocate for. So there's nothing intellectually wrong with any of those positions, except maybe the Marxist one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's interesting that the behaviour of the other activists pushed you out or alienated you. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's 
Yeah, Definitely. and I think that experience would ha- happen to a lot of other has has mm-hmm. happened to a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely. But then it, I went through this strange period of feeling very lost and like in the closet. I yeah. didn't want to admit that I wasn't okay with um, the authoritarian behavior, the bannings, the tr- you know trigger warnings, all that stuff. Because if you take issue with it, mm. it's like oh, so you're for triggering people with yeah. eating disorders. Yeah. You're like, you yeah. know, you're the bad person. So yeah. I didn't have the confidence then to really um, come out with it, but I just slowly drifted away. And um, and around that period, yeah, I, I came across you on Twitter. I didn't know about Quillette. I didn't know about you and was so surprised <laughs> that you were Australian yeah. Um and beautiful and young and smart and brave enough to say some of the things that I was thinking, but I myself wasn't mm. brave enough to say. Mm. It was like, holy shit, you know, blew my mind. So, um, and now I'm here. <laughs> yeah, and we're glad you're here. And mm. it's interesting how the dynamics of social media sort of set up this um, situation where you're either in the in group or you're in the out mm. group. There's no in between. You're either one of us and one of the good people or you're one of those bad, evil mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And this dynamic, it, it, like you said, it's occurring in these feminist Facebook groups, but it seems to occur in a lot of groups. Like, mm-hmm. it, like you know, you could go on to mum's groups who promote breastfeeding, right? Mm-hmm. If you are not for breastfeeding, you're in the app group. Mm-hmm. You can see it on Reddit, like with people who think that any anything, anything that touches Quillette, anything to do with Quillette mm-hmm. is somehow evil. And, you know, you're one of those bad mm-hmm. people. It's like there's something inherent in our psychology mm-hmm. that wants to be part of a group, mm-hmm. part of a tribe of of good, pure people mm-hmm. who are doing the right thing. And those other people, they're just evil and they need mm-hmm. to be either excommunicated or in some cases destroyed. For sure. And the scary thing is, is that, so I used to think that that kind of psychological framework was, there was something about, left-wing ideology that really tapped into that but I've seen over the years I've seen it uh occur on social media among you know right-wingers and even people who identify as independent Mm. I I see people who identify as being independent and heterodox sort of starting to think we're the good heterodox Mm. people and you're yeah, the bad. non-heterodox yeah. people and you're bad. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's just it can happen to mm-hmm. any people in any group with any ideology. Mm-hmm. Would and you that, say it's just a human tendency Yeah, yeah, it, it, that we have it, to be aware of? Yeah, Because mm-hmm. um, I'm sure we're both – I definitely have been, you know, I've fallen victim to that as well, that type of thinking. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's good to, to – be it just be aware of it and mm. catch yourself when you're doing it. And I've, I would be guilty of doing it too, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I've also been the victim of those dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where um, I've been excommunicated from groups that are left-wing, that are mm. right-wing, whatever, just because I can't – I can never conform to absolutely e- exactly. every single tenet yeah. of any group. Yeah. I'm the same and I think I naturally reject it too. I really hate – Maybe it's an only child thing or what. Well, you're similar and you're not an only child. Yeah. But I've always like recoiled from being, having like a group identity. I don't like it. It makes me feel, I don't know, Well, weird. it's always going to flatten some part of your individuality, mm. I think. 
um, there's because to be a member of a group means that you you have to agree with the group on every position they mm-hmm. take, and you know I might agree with a particular group on eighty mm-hmm. percent of their positions. But on that 20%, I want to have the freedom to disagree mm-hmm. and dissent. Mm. And I do think that there might be a particular personality type that is uh, a dissenting personality mm-hmm. type. Mm-hmm. Um, some people call it contrarian. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen... Small C contrarian. <laughs> yeah. What we've, yes, I'm a small C contrarian. <laughs> what we've seen online uh, in the last few years is that even even the identity of being contrarian Mm -hmm. has become hardened and solidified like Mm -hmm. people now identify as Mm. being contrarian and their groups sort of Mm. coalesce around celebrity contrarians and if you don't agree with the contrarian on everything yeah you're excommunicated from those groups and i mean it's ironic yeah right but (laughs) yeah uh you know, I, I reserve the right to disagree with a contrarian mm. and to dissent from mm. whatever it is they're dissenting mm. from. And it's like heterodox thinkers are expected to be heterodox in absolutely everything. <laughs> like you can't agree with um, the orthodoxy when it comes to vaccines. Like, oh, you agree with that, so you're yeah. not heterodox anymore. Like why can't you make up your mind on each Yeah, well, issue? A, 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 an intelligent person or a rational person, Mm. I should be more specific, looks at issues on a Mm case-by-case basis. And being anti-establishment on everything is just as lazy Mm. as being Mm pro-establishment on everything. And we also have to have the humility to recognise that we might be wrong and uh, we we have to allow ourselves to change our mind Mm -hmm. according to new evidence that comes comes to light. Mm But you're right. Um, I found the reflexive anti-establishment of the, many in the hetero, heterodox crowd mm-hmm. during COVID kind of disappointing because I felt that it lacked rigor. Yep. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm anti-establishment when it comes to things like gender self-ID mm-hmm, laws, mm-hmm. but when it comes to other issues such as defence, mm-hmm. national security. Mm-hmm. Or public health, I'm pretty comfortable being pro-establishment. Mm. Um, just going back to identity a little bit, yeah. um, I'm interested in what you would define, like what are some words that you would use to identify yourself? Like what's really important to your identity? Well, I'm a mum mm-hmm. and I'm a wife. Mm-hmm. I have a lovely husband, mm-hmm. Harry, who you're friends with. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm Australian, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, my national identity is important to me. Um, I'm a woman mm-hmm. and a real woman. Mm. <laughs> Do you think that's become more of your identity recently? Not really. I've always felt like I wouldn't say I have a gender identity, but I've always been interested in the female mm. experience. Me too. And other aspects of my identity would be I mean, I don't really have a a strong political identity. I wouldn't call myself a conservative or a liberal. I, like I've said before, I'm a centrist mm-hmm. because I like I want to reserve the freedom to move or shift around. If there's a policy mm-hmm. presented by conservatives that I like, I will support it. If there's another policy presented by progressives that mm-hmm. I like, I want to be able to support it. I don't want to be mm-hmm. fixed into one mm-hmm. 
position because mm-hmm. I've identified yeah. as a particular thing politically. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do believe that there are certain foundational principles mm-hmm. that are important. So I support liberalism, I support democracy, I support free speech. Uh, humanism? Humanism, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, the scientific enterprise, mm-hmm. scientific method. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I support foundational principles. If that translates into an identity, perhaps the identity is one of a, lib- a small L liberal, mm-hmm. a humanist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something along those lines. Hmm. Interesting. I think people would like to hear that. That's why I asked. <laughs> what else was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say about um, when we were talking about, you know, us versus them thinking, yeah. um, wanting to adhere to the group. I used to feel a stronger desire to do that when I was younger and as time's gone on, it's dissipated a bit. But um, recently, I haven't told you about this, but uh, so we published that um, article by Kevin Mims about the Princess Bride yeah. I haven't actually read it yet. Sorry, Kevin. But lots of people have and it's been very popular. Yeah. Um, and a an Australian um, sort of public figure, I won't say his name, uh, retweeted it from your account. And I was surprised that he followed you. Yeah. Um, and anyway, he just tweeted it and said, like, loved this article. And I was looking through the comments because I always want to see whether Australian audiences know our name. Mm. Because, you know, most of our readers are in the US. And um, most of them were just, you know, chatting about other stuff. And then some guy said something like, um, would, loved the film, The Princess Bride, but you couldn't pay me to read something in Quillette, mm-hmm. from Quillette. And I was feeling a bit cheeky. I was like, and I responded, I was like, what about if I paid you $2? <laughs> and, you know, just went back and forth a little bit. I wouldn't say I was trolling, maybe I was, but I was just, you know, making fun because it's such a ridiculous thing to say. As we were talking about last week, you read like Jacobin and Worldwide Socialist Web, you know. And then I thought, I looked at his profile and I could see that he was Aussie. Yeah. Just looked like a really normal dude. And um, I thought, I'm going to message him. And I just messaged him and said, uh, hey, like, just cur- out of curiosity, yeah. um, what's your gripe with Quillette? Yeah. Anyway, we went, we had a bit of a back and forth and yeah. it was all very um, polite and um, he pretty much said that he just associated our name with some disgusting ideas. Mm. And I said, okay, what disgusting ideas? <laughs> um, and he said eugenics, which I almost knew he was going to say. Yeah. Um, and I was like, interesting. Okay, that's a very big term. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have some, like, where did you read yeah, this? Yeah, what's the evidence? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he couldn't show anything. Mm. And I said, I sort of said, like, I hope you haven't just, um, you know, read what other people are saying online mm. and just assumed it's true and associated, yeah. it, associated mm. our name with that. Yeah. Um, because it's a massive word to throw at someone like yeah yeah how can you just do that you know oh there's a there's a surprising number of people Mm -hmm. who have formulated an opinion Mm -hmm. about who we are according to on the basis of rumor Mm -hmm. and online slander Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. and uh distortion and mischaracterization Mm -hmm. and unfortunately i mean 
it has happened to us, but it's not, we're not the only victims mm. of this kind mm-hmm. of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, there's a, a large group of people who honestly think that J.K. Rowling mm-hmm. is some kind of evil witch and she's transphobic and she's out there uh, arguing for trans people to mm-hmm. be stripped of their rights when in reality she's just trying to protect women's right to have single-sex mm-hmm. spaces and, and for women not to be erased mm-hmm. because of gender ideology. Uh, and so there's this this phenomenon where distortions and mischaracterizations can take root and can go viral online and fail to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that I don't know how many people, but there's a, there's a lot of people who have never read any of our articles, exactly. have never come across mm-hmm. uh, us as editors mm-hmm. And but have formulated or have arrived at this opinion because of what someone else has said, mm-hmm. and it's quite disappointing. Mm. And uh, it's a reminder that we all need to read primary sources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. So if we're going to form an opinion about a news outlet or whatever, mm-hmm. probably a good idea mm-hmm. to go and check it mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. before relying on secondary sources. I mean, I've been guilty in the past of dismissing a book because I've read a book review that has been critical. Mm-hmm. But really what responsible critics should do is read the book before necessarily relying on a review. Yeah. Because some reviews can be very biased, mm-hmm. very skewed and can and be straw men. Yeah. Um, and that's what's happened to us. So all mm-hmm. of this stuff about eugenics, whatever, is mm-hmm. straw man. Our mm-hmm. position is simply that there is no um, limit to what you can investigate scientifically. Mm-hmm. And that genetics actually matters. Mm-hmm. And, um, you mm. know, there's there's a trend at the moment to discredit any kind of science involving genetics by smearing mm-hmm. it as eugenics. Or human difference, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, Peter Singer, the um, well-known Australian philosopher, was tarred with the same brush um, yeah. when I worked at Thinking and we toured Peter. Some of the, the most backlash we got was regarding him being an evil eugenicist because he supported abortion, which is like the most lefty thing you can do. But yeah. And his belief was he's a utilitarian and mm. he said that if a baby is going to be born with a severe, severe disability that would, um, you know, ruin their quality of life and cause a life of pain, then as a moral philosopher, his belief is that, Mm. Um, you know, abortion or terminating the pregnancy is the most ethical decision. And from that you know, from decades of thought and writing, mm. people just say, eugenicist. Yeah. And come and protest the shows and stuff. Like, it's so yeah. dumb. Well, they're trying to um, confuse. I mean, it, everything, there's a lot of stuff we do. Uh, so when I was pregnant, I had a a, a genetic screening test mm-hmm. for my second pregnancy. And Is that normal? Is that? It's normal okay. now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't around in my first pregnancy, mm-hmm. but it picks up on it should the test should be able to pick up on genetic defects. Mm-hmm. And so technically that's eugenics. Mm. Like if you were to uh, terminate a preg like I didn't terminate my pregnancy because mm-hmm. it was fine, but mm-hmm. if you were to terminate a pregnancy because of a screening test like that, technically that is eugenics, mm-hmm. right? But the way the term is used is um in reference to the policies of Nazi Germany. Mm which were coercive. Mm-hmm. So it was the the policies were imposed by the state. They mm-hmm. weren't voluntary. So when we're talking about people voluntarily 
getting a genetic screening test done and vol- mm-hmm. voluntarily choosing to terminate a pregnancy. I mean, is that the same thing as Nazi mm. Germany? We would probably say no mm-hmm. because it's not uh, coercive. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a bit of confusion over what people use the term. The term is not used to further debate. The term is used to as shut down debate. Yeah. Like the term Nazi, yeah. it's like a, it's just like calling someone mm-hmm. a Nazi. You're not interested in, in any kind of truthful or honest debate about mm-hmm. whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to smear another person, basically uh, associate them with just mm-hmm. the most evil atrocities mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. and 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 the goal is to shut down debate. Mm-hmm. So the people who do that, are, I mean, they've got their own agenda, and it, the the agenda is not one of seeking truth or seeking civil debate. That's mm-hmm. for sure. They've got to find something better to do with their time. <laughs> My God. Anyway, and the irony is that the these words lose all meaning, you know. And um, like Peter Singer is the the son of Jewish refugees from Czechoslovakia, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Mm. Like he's literally a victim of the Holocaust, eugenics, yeah. and yeah. Nazism. And then yeah. people are throwing those words at him. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just so ridiculous. And these people don't see it. I don't know. Yeah, how can we make them see it? <laughs> <laughs> they should listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. They won't because they'll just see our name and. Yeah, it's uh the issue of authoritarian authoritarian authoritarianism in the name of compassion mm-hmm. is a is a tricky one. I don't think we're going to solve it today, but I think we've canvassed some of the issues. Well, until next week. Until next week, Zoe. Thanks Bye. for chatting. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.